Welcome to Pocket Guide to Hell, the radio show, where we explore the intersections of art, politics, and culture as illuminated by Chicago's past. Along the way, we talk with fine folks doing the work of keeping the past present and show you the places where the city's history resides today. Near the end of the 19th century, a visiting labor leader called Chicago a, quote, pocket edition of hell. Asked if that was fair, he took in the corruption, inequality, and general nastiness and said, quote, on second thought, hell is a pocket edition of Chicago. But these are the stories, the people, and places that nudge us a bit closer to... On November 10th, 1887, four men ascended a scaffold erected between the Cook County Court Building and the Cook County Jail. Before an audience of 200, they made their last remarks. Their names are August Spees, Albert Parsons, Adolf Fisher, and George Engel. Their executions were what seemed to be the end to what was one of the most important events in in Chicago's history and would become an important event in the history of the United States and the world at large. And that was the bombing in the area known as the Haymarket in the city of Chicago. So to talk to us about that event and its lasting relevance and, and resonance, we have with us in the studio today the president of the board of the Illinois Labor History Society, Larry Spivak, And then we also have uh, on the phone with us Alma Washington, an actor who for many years has interpreted the life of Lucy Parsons, who in the decades after that event in 1887, carried on the work of those four men. So uh, thank you for having us. Thank you. Yes. Oh, great. Um, So let's talk for a moment about what led up to that event in November of 1887. So my first question, Larry, is going to be to you. Um, you know, why, why were those men first put on trial and then ultimately sentenced to be executed? And, you know, why does the story of the Haymarket still mean so much to, to people here in the city? I think, without being glib, uh, they were executed for their ideas. That's why they had were put on trial. And in fact, that was the statement of the prosecutor uh, at the closing argument, that um, they are no more guilty than the rest of you, as, as uh, Grinnell speaks to the jury, but says, uh, but uh, convict them for their ideas to keep our society safe. And those were ideas that challenged uh, the very basic element of power, which was capital. Uh, the fight for the eight-hour day, which really was revolutionary because it was uh, such a radical change that workers would suddenly be paid eight hours paid the same amount of money for working eight hours instead of 12 14 or 16 each day um, was a, a, a hit to profit making and so but even greater than just that micro aspect of economics is that it showed their collective power of the working class to uh, change society and that's why I think they had to be executed. And as uh, August Spee said uh, uh, at the hanging, the day will come when our silence will be greater than the voices you are throttling today uh, rings true today for social movements and people exercising collective action. Yeah, right. I, oh, sorry. I, yes, ma'am. 
Can I chime in? Oh yes, of course. And and I and I agree. And also, since they were the they were called you know the troublemakers and making such a noise that this was their way of getting rid of them, whether they were guilty or not. This was, to have that trial and hang them, that then you know that clears uh, the way for them to carry on as they'd been proceeding. Right, because I mean, Larry made reference to it, but it, it sort of grew out of this push for an eight-hour workday. And the first of May, 1886, had been designated as the day that workers all across the country would leave their jobs in order to protest for an eight-hour workday. And on the fourth of May, 1886, that's when um, there was a meeting in the area of Chicago known as the Haymarket, at which August Spees and Albert Parsons and a third person, Samuel Fielden, spoke. And you know, as that event was unfolding, uh, a group of police tried to break up the meeting, which was a peaceful meeting. And someone in the crowd threw a bomb uh, into the columns of police. And there was some violence that occurred. And one officer lost his life instantly. And then Larry, as you said, the, the men were put on trial more for their ideas than for having actually participated in that act of violence. Because to this day, historians still don't know who, who threw the bomb, and that's kind of one of the great right. And the trial and the trial transcripts are clear. There's no evidence against anybody, and they were randomly selected because mm -hmm. they were radicals, they were activists, they were the leaders of uh, a movement against uh, 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 industry, and so uh, uh, it was uh, um, uh, a uh, almost predestined that mm -hmm. <laughs> this would occur. <laughs> And some of the witnesses were, were paid to, to, to lie right there on the stand, you know? So, you know, that, that was a common during that time. It's true. Uh, later on, evidence would come out that some of the witnesses had perjured themselves. And I should also add, too, that even though it was four men that were executed, there were eight men who had been brought to trial. Um, one was sentenced to the state penitentiary in Joliet in the immediate aftermath of the trial, Oscar Niebe. Uh, the other seven were sentenced to be executed, but a couple of them sought clemency from the governor, including Fielden, who was one of the gentlemen who spoke on that night that the bomb went off. And uh, another, Louis Ling, uh, committed suicide the day prior to his execution, although his execution was scheduled. Although, right. if I uh, yeah. may interrupt, uh, many of us would say that perhaps uh, it is just as likely that he was murdered by the police in jail and did not commit suicide. Which is another way in which the right. sort of Haymarket story, I think, you know, has echoes in our, our current moment, because even though the 1st of May, 1886, is when people went on strike for the eight-hour day, the reason that meeting happened on the May 4th, well, on May 4th, is because what had occurred the day before May 3rd, where police had fired into a group of, of striking workers outside the McCormick Reaper plant. So it was this sort of act of police violence in some ways that the people gathered in the Haymarket were also responding to. Right. And, and yeah, Alma? And they were and they were on strike because uh, the uh, powers that be were going to cut their salaries, and they weren't making that much as it was. Mm -hmm. And uh, that that was one of the reasons they went on strike. Well, one thing that you know, I think Alma, you can speak to too. I mean, so far we've been talking about you know Albert Parsons, August Spees, Samuel Field, and people like that. Um, but this push for an eight-hour day, uh, and then just the sort of like growing labor movement as a whole. I mean, women played a really kind of important role in that. And even on that night, uh, May 4th, 1886, when Albert Parsons was there in the area known as the Haymarket and gave one of the speeches before the bomb went off, I mean, he was there with his, his wife, um, Lucy Parsons, um, who was right. as much of an activist and a kind of leader in the movement 
as he was. And, and you've spent many years kind of interpreting her life um, and kind of, you know, traveling not just around Chicago, but across the state, kind of helping people know about the sort of important work that yes, she did. Yes, I, I, I did. I traveled with the, first when I started with it, I was with the uh, uh, Illinois Humanities Council because okay. they had a program called Road Scholars. And um, Mr. O'Rear and, and my mentor, um, uh, uh, Bill Edelman, suggested mm-hmm. that I write up my little proposal to be a part of that. And I traveled all over uh, the state of Illinois uh, just talking about it. Because, well, first of all, when I had never heard of her before until mm-hmm. um, a, a woman playwright by the name of Joan, Joanne Cook wrote a play about the trial, and someone asked me would I read the Lucy Parsons part, and, and I did. And I, it just intrigued me because I'd never heard of this woman and was not taught in school anything about her. And I'm from a family of a lot of teachers. And I said, you know, do you know this woman? Have you heard of her? And, and no. And, and I think it was because all the publicity and all the writings were about Albert. Mm-hmm. So I thought, I thought well, if, they, if, they, if people don't know about her, it's time for me to be the person to let them know. So that was a great opportunity to... Um, to, to be a part of, to have her to be a part of my life, and uh, but I but after um, touring with uh, the one woman show, which I've done so many times, I thought, well, wouldn't this be a wonderful play for more than one character? So um, I had met Saul Bellow long, long time ago when I was at Roosevelt College, college, and um, I asked him, would he? write a play for me about Lucy Parsons and he said no he didn't think he could do that because he had so many other things on his mind but uh, I said well would you look at it if someone else wrote it and, and give us your comments and and, and he, he agreed but of course that did not happen and, and then there was Studs Terkel whose wife had seen her in a parade mm-hmm. and um, and so she but no one had ever had but she had not talked with her so I could it was difficult trying to find information about her. So I started to dig, and um, there was a woman by the name of Carolyn Ashbaugh who wrote American Revolutionary, and mm-hmm. uh, that's when I started to really dig and thought, well, it's going to be up to me to have to do this. But I, I found that she was such a, 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 a big part of Albert's life, of course, and I, I consider them like two of the star-crossed lovers almost, but um, that... Um, her life should be uh, celebrated mm-hmm. more so, and um, I've been trying to do that all along. And when I was doing my research, uh, and I saw in uh, Carolyn's book that um, Winsaki, who was with the uh, Old mm-hmm. Town School of uh, Folk Music, that he had sang at Lucy Parsons' funeral. Right. So I asked him. I said, "Well, what did you sing?" And he said, "He sang Old Freedom." And I said, th- "I said, oh my gosh!" I said. Um, uh, Annie Laurie was uh, his favorite song, and and uh, and uh, Lucy would have loved that. He said, "Well, if he had known that, he would have sang that particular song." So, uh, but I, I think um, that the the the, the eight-hour day thing that they were started, I I, I think it still ex- the uh, struggles still exist because it's still that whole thing of, between capital and labor, right. you know, wages, equal pay. That eight hours, there's no eight hours anymore. People are working 12 hours, 16, or even two and three jobs. Right. Uh, uh, it, I think it, it has been, it's, been, it's been rather rough. And Lucy always believed that the uh, capitalists should be grateful for the work, to the workers because mm-hmm. they're the ones who are making them rich. 
and it, and if they were in there and, and not to go out on strike, to strike and remain in and take possession of of the things that they had produced. And I, I remember the the uh, uh, company. I think it was a was it a Windows company that uh, not so long ago in Chicago they or went on strike windows. and mm-hmm. they stayed in and and the yeah, people in the community. Yeah. What, what what was that company? Do you oh. remember? Larry, you just said yeah. Republic Windows mm-hmm. doors and windows. Right. Yes, yes, and you remember they stayed in, right. and the, the community bought them food and clothing and all of that, and um, and that's the only time that I that I thought, oh my gosh, that's Lucy right well, on. Lucy right was on one target. of the, the pioneers of, of that technique of, of the sit down strike. I mean, her life is really fascinating in that. I mean, here was this individual. She was, you know, born enslaved in in Virginia, and then at the time of uh, the emancipation and the aftermath of the Civil War is living in Texas. She ends up marrying this gentleman who had served in the Confederacy, but it had his own kind of political conversion. And it couldn't have been easy to be a mixed-race couple in Texas in the 1870s, or in Chicago, for that matter, when, when they move up here. And then after her husband you know, is, is put on trial, as Larry said, for his ideas and executed, you know, she doesn't stop. She just continues to kind of like do her work and travel all across the country, become involved in, in the suffrage movement as, as well, yeah. um, becomes sort of, I, I'd just say friends, but maybe to use a, a contemporary term, frenemies with the figures like Jane Addams um, and oh, yeah. Frances Willard, who she didn't always agree with, um, and had a really kind of very long life that extended all the way to the early 1940s. And 1942. As, right, and right. in the early 1940s, she's still like showing up at strikes at like International Harvester and... and, and oh, yes, when, and whenever there was a, a strike or parade, that she was there. Right. You're right that she and Jane Addams, Jane, Jane, they were not always, uh, didn't always agree on certain points, but uh, Jane, when, when, uh, when Lucy was jailed, along with some other comrades, uh, Jane was responsible for getting them out of jail, so... Right. Um, and she was criticized for that, but yeah, she she uh, she was. I, I think she was fearless. I really right. do. I think she was just a woman who was fearless and believed in what she believed in, and nothing else could persuade her otherwise. And then Larry, I mean, she also had a role too in, in, in some senses, in the, the founding of the organization that you're president of, the Illinois Labor History Society, in the sense that you're the stewards of the the Haymarket Memorial in uh, what was called Waldheim Cemetery right. in the 1880s. And now Forest Home Cemetery. Yeah. So when Lucy uh, uh, um, decided that there ought to be uh, a, memo- a monument there, it wasn't her first impulse, but uh, after seeing that the police had gotten a statue unjustly for and misinterpreted history completely, um, her organization, the Pioneer Aid Support Association, um, uh, started... Uh, Collecting money uh, that uh, to have the the statue. Um, uh, rolling forward to 1971, the last surviving member of the Pioneer Aid Support Association, uh, Irving Abrams, who was her attorney, actually, um, he deeded the monument to the newly fledging organization, the Illinois Labor History Society, uh, formed in 1969 to remember the story of Haymarket and to properly uh, celebrate it. And uh, so we've been the uh, uh, deed holder and caretaker of that monument, the world's most important labor site. I would say the world's most sacred labor site. And uh, so that's one of our many tasks. But uh, Lucy, uh, of course, uh, uh, started that. 
Yeah, I, well, I wanted to jump in and just uh, kind of step back for a second and and, and ask how uh, specifically Lucy kind of came to that political awakening or political awareness. Was this something that was just kind of always inside her or was it uh, a product of kind of some of the circles in which she's traveling and as, as she's learning? Because I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, the difference of thinking about what labor looks like different but similar but did labor looks like in in 1870s um texas versus 1880s chicago you know like there uh, there's just kind of um there, there's slightly different context but you know obviously capitals all the same everywhere how did how did she come to kind of like hold and and maybe develop her beliefs as as she uh as she kind of experienced as she was going through uh history well, I don't know how Alma would answer, but one thing I liked what Alma said was that they were star-crossed lovers, and I think they influenced each other greatly because Albert had political aspirations, and she was a, inherently an organizer. Um, and Alma, maybe we'll talk more about that period in Texas, but, uh, um, you know, so they worked together on the ideas of... Uh, uh, political organizing and uh, oh yes so. they, they certainly did because remember that was how she met albert when he was traveling uh down, uh, on horseback as they say um for a, a paper that he had been uh, that had employed him and um they he wanted to know you know uh who, who he believed he should talk to so she sort of took him around to introduce him they started he started to to register people to vote and, and this became kind of a little problem because you've got this black woman and this white man together with, and in the South. I mean, that was just kind of unheard of. So the atmosphere, I think, got a bit too hot for them down there. So I think they were both all working on the same side for the same projects, or the same purpose, rather. And then when, she, when they get to Chicago, thinking that, oh, this will, things will be better, especially where the racial issue is concerned, and they're running into the same problems because nobody wants to rent them a room, you know, the, and they're, they're talked about, and she's whispered about, and all of that, and, and whether they were married or not. All of that, and um, um, I, I just wondered, that she, and I have a feeling that she probably said to each other, yeah, here we are. And it's no different than when we were in Texas. Well, I mean, it's just, you know, fascinating to, to me that, as I said before, I mean, her, her life kind of spans this long period of time. It kind of has such a kind of significant part in how we can understand labor history and kind of how it unfolded in Chicago, but influences beyond this city. And yet we still, I mean, there's a public park named for her, but that's really kind of like the only sort of monument that that exists, although there's talk of, of other ones. And then when you think about, I mean, there's a lot of conversation just in general right now about like what should be memorial, what parts of the past should be memorialized, right, and what figures should be celebrated or shouldn't. And if you look at not just a figure like Lucy Parsons, um, but labor history more broadly in, in Chicago, uh, apart from stories like the Haymarket, you, you don't see a, a lot of... Um, you know, commemoration or, or ways in which that past has been preserved. So, I mean, Larry, are there other stories from Chicago's labor? I mean, you're the president of the Illinois Labor History Society. I mean, that you feel, I mean, people do know. We have, do we have a few days? Do we have a few days? Okay. Um, but, I mean, we are kind of at, you know, this really kind of interesting moment where you look at a figure like Lucy Parsons and, you know, what she did in so many ways helps us kind of understand where we are 
now, and yet, as Alma said, right, so few people knew, I mean, know about her, um, although I think that's certainly changing and growing. Same with, yeah, like, figures is. like Ida B. Wells. But, I mean, I mean, Alma, you really had to, like, do a lot of work, right, to kind of, like, find sources and, and I and did, kind of, like, I did, and, and, and I even went together. to different whenever I would go to a different city, like Wisconsin, I worked up in Wisconsin, I'd go mm-hmm. to the library, and, and you'd find a little bit here and there, but there was just, there was just, and then some of the main books that were written about women during that time, she wasn't included, and it, it, mm-hmm. it was just, it was, it was amazing, and I thought, uh, why is that? And well, there's even a, in, in, in one other aspect of this, and I talk about this a lot when I do presentations and tours, not just about the role of women that is, uh, but the secondary part of this is that the story of labor that some of these most important women in our history are connected to isn't even mentioned. So Jane Addams is a great example. We all think of Jane Addams, Nobel Prize winning, uh, a winner of the Nobel Prize, uh, founder of the, you know, the idea that she's the mother of social work. But nobody talks about the fact that she was uh, involved in the 1904 uh, strike at the uh, stockyards, just uh, right, right around the corner from where this studio is. Um, people don't talk about the fact that she played a significant role uh, during the Pullman, after the Pullman strike in uh, uh, dealing with uh, getting, trying to get uh, Pullman to arbitrate. And que- she was a labor activist through and through. So I'm just trying to say that we don't ever tell the story of uh, labor and organizing we always find other ways to talk about these uh, matters and so it's kind of the untold story it, especially through the woman's point of view you know i mean and then i just think and then that, that could have been just a product of the time you know the writings the people are more aware now and uh i i don't think i i don't you know that that uh, with all the uh, technology and everything that we have now I think a lot of people, because we were, I was working with a friend who has written a play about the suffragettes, just three of us, and I play Ida B. Wells in that, and we were talking about it, and we said that there were so many other women, especially African-American women, that were active during that time, but it just, you know, you had to dig to try to find it, and, um, and during this past year or so, it has come out, so, so I thought, well, maybe that's my next project. Maybe I better go and find one of those women and sort of, you know, bring their life to, to, to the forefront. Mm. Uh, I'm Larry. I was wondering if, this is a, a purely speculative question, but I'm, I'm wondering about what Lucy would say about sort of this particular moment and organizing and labor in this particular moment. You know, because one of the things for me in, in going back and learning about some of these histories is you see just kind of like the... Um, you know, the intensity of the battle between workers and, and factory owners. And, uh, and, 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 you know, we're also talking at a moment right now of we haven't had this level of inequality for 100 years or whatever. So, like, it seems like there's a particular moment in which, you know, like out of which the, these types of intensities of the labor battle happened. And it seems like we're also in a moment where th- those, those are primed to happen again. Like what? 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 What do you think, Lucy, might say about about the way that labor uh, activism happens nowadays? I I think that Lucy would be organizing the the gig workers and the Amazon workers and uh, um, uh, and of course uh, the 
you know, paying attention to voter suppression and things like that. I mean, she evolved in different, you know, I say she changed over her lifetime from uh, being kind of focused and seen as an anarchist to moving towards being uh, mm -hmm. associated with the Communist Party. And I mean, as every, most people change politically. And I think you just brought up what could be a new play that Alma is in, which is Lucy Today, and organizing <laughs> those workers. But I think she'd be uh, saying that uh, the issues of uh, 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 inequality, wage disparity, the same issues exist today. As you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, the Gilded Age is here again, and um, uh, that's what she'd be fighting. I think I think so too, Larry. I think that's exactly what she would be doing, and and out there marching and and and, and getting people to vote and whatever she could, she would be there with her voice. And um, and I remember one of her speeches um, that I found when um, the I think it was the commemoration 50 years of the Haymarket or whatever. And um, she was t saying, and she used the words, "the men who had died for labor," and you know, you think. And I would say, do you know a man who, these days who would die for labor? You know, but it, I believe she and, well, Albert did. And I, I think she was, had that same kind of fierceness in her. You know, she would be out there, yes, speaking out. Oh, she'd probably be in jail every time there was a, <laughs> a parade or something. <laughs> because remember, even in her lifetime, when, the, uh, when they were recruiting uh, men to, to uh, fight in the war, She's, and they were on the, the uh, recruiting office was on, on one corner. Lucy's on the opposite corner telling the men, don't do that. Do not go and sign up. You know? so, and I don't think that went over too well, but, uh, yeah, she, she would be there. But fundamentally, she was about understanding that um, uh, as society moved from chattel uh, slavery to wage slavery, and my favorite quote uh, in part was, uh, when labor is no longer for sale, uh, uh, men and women will think free, act free, and be free. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's one of the great ones. Yeah. And, and once again, I just want to like draw attention to just how long her kind of life and career spanned, and that she stayed active. I mean, till the end. I mean, so June twenty fifth, eighteen ninety three, she dedicates the memorial to her husband and the other men in what was then Waldheim Cemetery. The twenty sixth of June, eighteen ninety three. She's able to see something that she had been um, organizing around, which was the pardoning of the men who had been sent to the penitentiary, mm -hmm. uh, the, three men, the two men who had asked for clemency, and then Oscar Niebe. And then she stays active all the way until she dies, tragically, in a house fire in 1942. Under and the, suspicious... Right, uh, and the and police still consider her, though, such a yes. threat, even though she's <laughs> in her 90s, that they yes. seize all her papers and her library. So, exactly. I mean, it's an amazing story. Unfortunately... We're just about out of time, but I just want to take one last minute to allow both you, Alma, to kind of tell us sort of like what you're working on now or when you can expect to maybe um, do another project connected to Lucy. And then, Larry, I'd like to hear from you, too, about like what is the Illinois Labor History Society focused on these days well, and how people can get involved. So, Alma? Well, I'm focused on trying to do some rewrites for that the, the uh, play about Lucy. And... Uh, mm -hmm. I uh, uh, it, it, it's it's not easy to write. It it isn't. It, she's it, 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 uh, it's 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 really a one of my projects that I figure that it that is my life work that I just have to get that out there somewhere. So that's what I'm working on right now. Well, and and the Labor History Society, of course, is the uh, not just always having to guard uh, the the Haymarket. Uh, uh, 
martyr's statue in Forest Park or take care of it, but to tell the story of labor, and we do that in many ways. And currently, one of the things that I'm excited about is that we were able to engage with the National Park Service uh, on the ground floor for the new National Monument in Pullman, which is the story of America in so many ways, of the, uh, 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 the, the uh, Pullman porters to the workers who struck in 1894. Uh, uh, um, amazing story, and um, uh, we're there helping to interpret uh, what happened so that as it continues to grow and expand, it won't just be a kind of a corporate uh, museum, but it'll be about the story of workers as well. So that's so one of many things. But, you know, uh, there's a very strong effort to get a statue here of Mother Jones in Chicago. She lived here for a period of time and one of the most important people, again, in labor history and American history. And uh, we're part of that. And um, uh, it's my hope that uh, we can start doing something about commemorating the Battle of the Viaduct just uh, down the street from here at 16th and Halstead, one of the seminal moments in American history, the almost uh, revolution, that workers' revolution that took place in 1877. So there are many things like that, as well as the other regular sites that we take people to and talk about and interpret from stockyards to the uh, Republic Memorial Day Massacre of the steel workers and uh, uh, Republic Steel on the south side and um, uh, so many others. Yeah, I was going to say the stockyards are certainly one that should be because, you know, when you think of uh, Sandberg and, you know, his comment about, you know, hog butcher of the world and so forth, I think that's an excellent uh, topic to, for you to explore. Well, there's so much history out there and there's so much labor history out there and so thank you both of you for what you're doing to kind of help us learn more about it. Uh, our guests have been Larry Spivak and Alma Washington. Thank you for talking with us. Thank you all. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Treated 
$2 shoe hurts my feet. I said your $2 shoe hurts my feet. Your $2 shoe hurts my feet. Lord God, I ain't gonna be treated this way. I ain't gonna be treated this way. I ain't gonna be treated this way, and I ain't gonna be treated this way, Lord God, I ain't gonna be treated this way. The first memorial created in response to the Haymarket bombing was unveiled on May 30, 1889, and it was dedicated to the eight police officers who died from wounds sustained in the bombing. You can still see the statue of an officer with his arm upraised today, but it no longer stands in the center of Randolph Street. It's had several different homes over the years and been recast multiple times over the course of a century. But rather, it's outside the entrance to the city of Chicago Public Safety Headquarters at 35th and Michigan. Today, Benefits from a battle over the eight-hour workday are shared with law enforcement officers as their union, the Fraternal Order of Police, Lodge Number no. 7, is one of the strongest in the city. The strength, some have argued, has, direct, has been directed against reform. And here to talk with us about the history of police unions in the city, which she recently wrote about for Chicago Magazine, is journalist Amy Levitt. Amy, thanks for joining us. Yeah, well, thank, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you, Amy. I wanted to start out by just kind of getting a general sense of what led you to write this piece about FOP Lodge 7. Like, why why now? It's a really boring story. Actually, um, my editor at Chicago Magazine suggested it. <laughs> but, um, you know, all over the summer, everybody's been talking so much about police unions and our own police union. Um, they've been without a contract since, well, FOP has been without a contract since 2017, so they were about to start negotiating their new contract. They had a new president, so you know, everything was starting. And then, of course, the police had a hard time this summer because of George Floyd, because of the protests, because things are changing and they are not. So that's, I think, the thinking that led Chicago Magazine to want to do this story. And, and just so we have, uh, so just so we're, we're all clear about this, FOP Lodge Seven is is one of several unions that that um, that represent patrolmen, uh, but it's the most powerful. Is that true? It's the only union that represents the, patrolmen in Chicago. Okay. Yeah, the captains, the sergeants, and the lieutenants each have their own unions. They're represented by a different union than FOP. But one thing that you know, I was really interested to to learn in, in your article is, as I mentioned uh, to you as we were kind of getting ready for this, um, you know, earlier in this episode, we, we talked with a couple of people about the story of, of the bombing in Haymarket Square and the push for the eight-hour workday and the kind of union movement that kind of grew out of that moment. Uh, but the Fraternal Order of Police, at least the, the lodge here in Chicago, you know, it doesn't date to that, that kind of period of kind of like union growth. Um, Right? We don't really, I mean, we don't see it until the early 1960s. And can you tell our listeners a little bit about, like, how the Fraternal Order of uh, Police, um, Lodge Number no. 7, kind of comes into being here in Chicago and then sort of gets the influence that it currently wields? Yeah, sure. Um, 
Well, actually, Chicago was the last of the big cities to unionize its police department. Um, for a long time, the police were part of the daily machine. Like, if they, like all the benefits were negotiated through handshake deals with Mayor Daly. He called himself the patrolman's friend, which I think is kind of funny. But anyway, um, if they wanted raises, you know, the things like normal people want from their unions mm-hmm. and, you know, work benefits, they would go through him. But then in the 60s, there were um, several rival police unions going on in Chicago. At the time, um, there was Orlando Wilson. He was the new police superintendent. He was brought in after this huge scandal on the Northwest side, like police cars were transporting stolen goods, mm-hmm. and it made the police department look really, really bad, so they needed reform. And uh, Wilson, he'd been like a professor of criminology, so he really, he had no political stakes in this game. He was in California, I think. So, um, but the police did not want to be reformed in the ways that he wanted to reform. So they formed like these unions and there were several of them and they were all like kind of jockeying for supremacy. And then finally in the seventies, Daly said, the police, okay, police, you can unionize. And the police voted on whichever union they wanted and they chose FOP, mm-hmm. which uh, it became very strong in cities across the country because part of its uh, thing, I guess, it's, it had a police bill of rights, mm-hmm. which meant that investigations and stuff were covered in its contract. So if you had an FOP contract, it meant that the union was defending you, and you know you had these lawyers that would come in and they would basically get you out of trouble. So that was the great appeal of FOP. Why, why did Daly uh, decide to actually allow start allowing the union, I guess, in 1976? I'm sorry, I don't really remember. You don't have to say that. Uh, <laughs> like that but. It's just interesting because it's like right, right before he like dies, right? You know, <laughs> and yeah. he for like 20 years, and then all of a sudden he's just like... Yeah, I think he just saw that it's a thing, you know, it, was, it had to happen. There was just such a push for it. Daly also wanted the Teamsters to be the union. I think he had something going with them. I think he was very disappointed when they went with FOP instead. Um, and, and why do you think it's important for like Chicagoans to kind of understand this this the the role of police unions in ongoing conversations around police reform? Like, what was the most surprising thing that you learned about the FOP or the history of police unions in Chicago uh, over the course of like researching and writing this article? I just realized how much power the union has. Like, you cannot, even though there's a uh, consent decree going on, which means they established it after on McDonald incident. And so the, uh, the government, the Justice Department actually, they say that the Chicago Police Department has to reform. But there are all these things in the union contract that are against that. Like, the union contract says, you know, if a police officer is accused of misconduct, he or she has. 48 hours, well, 24 hours, but it can be pushed to 48 hours to get their story into place. They'll know who's, you know, questioning them. It's only like you can't appeal, like there's only one appeal. If you you, um, don't like your decision, it gets sent to arbitration. So really, it's really stacked in favor of the police, which means that there's all sorts of misconduct going around, and they're protected by their union. 
So how did the how did the consent decree? I'm just confused about how the consent decree even is this a, is this how it even kind of pa passed through with n knowing that it would butt up against all these union rules? Is this just uh, uh, an issue that needs to be worked out in the courts between like unions and the federal government, or is this something that's just kind of like more larger and intractable? The, it's larger than the union. The union tried to stop it, and they were overruled. They appealed it to so many courts, and the courts said, no, you've got to do this. But and no, there are things mm. that the, the police department can do without the union, but then there are some things, like they want to reduce the ratio of supervisors to officers, and that's in the union contract, so that has to be changed. Well, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, it seems like in many ways, in order to bring the Chicago Police Department in line with what's in the consent decree, it really does require that the city of, of Chicago and the, the union kind of working collaboratively. Uh, and at least in this current moment, you know, while there's still a, you know, conflict and the contract negotiations going on, it doesn't seem uh, terribly likely, right, that we'll, we'll get to that place where one might not be terribly optimistic about getting to a place where there's kind of constructive collaboration between the FOP and, and the city. Is that your sense? Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. John Cotton's our, the union president, he is extremely conservative. He's a Trumper. He mm -hmm. does not want to cooperate with the union. He hates Kim Fox. He does not like the mayor. But what was interesting in yeah. this article is that you managed to get, I mean, a lot of access to, I mean, union officials and, and to be able to kind of talk with people. I mean, was that a, given the fact that there is this sort of distrust uh, that exists between the city, uh, on the one hand, and the FOP, Lodge Number 7, and, and presumably there's some mistrust between, say, the media and, and the FOP. I mean, how were you able to kind of, like, build the trust necessary to kind of have these these conversations and, and learn about, like, what did, you know, the union's thinking and, and side is? Well, Cotton's I just took office in May, so he's very new. Mm -hmm. And he loves media. He just he'll talk to anybody. Okay. Like the night the the statue came down, the Columbus mm -hmm. statue came down in Grant Park. He was out there. He was talking to everybody. So I think he was happy to have a platform to talk to me. Mm -hmm. He was extremely generous with his time. Like I, he gave me an hour. We just sat in his office and talked uninterrupted. I was very surprised actually. Well, it also brings up kind of like the aspect of you know uh, being a, a union president is also like it's a political office. And I think one of the other things that was really <clears throat> remarkable in reading the article was uh, just thinking about um, trying to gauge from the outside what level of support he has. Because he won, he won his election kind of narrowly um, and, uh, you know, with, uh, I forget exactly, you know, maybe half the people voting uh, who were in the union. But uh, do you have any sense uh, over um, even just the past couple of, of months what has happened in, in internally in, in the FOP Lodge 7 uh, in terms of, of support for kind of his, his approach to things? I think it's hard to say because they're so closed in yeah. and also because they have this attitude like you have to show, you know, you have to prove yourself before you're allowed to criticize us. You have to come to meetings, you have to sit there, you have to pay your dues. So if you're like a young person, like uh, Julius Gibbons, he was a young black cop that resigned from the union this summer. Mm -hmm. uh, his criticisms are seen as invalid because he is not part of the union establishment. Yeah. Um, sorry, Paul, yeah. Oh, no, I mean, well, I guess, 
you know, one thing that I'm also curious about is, you know, earlier in our conversation, you mentioned that Chicago is like the last major city where police officers, patrolmen unionized. Um, but now in 2020, when you look at kind of police unions and other major cities ac across the country, I mean, would you say the Fraternal Order of Police's position here is, is unique, or is it part of a kind of broader pattern in terms of the, the strength of, of these unions in, in different cities? Um, or are there places where actually the unions and the city officials get along better, or there's a greater chance of, of reform, or is it more as a, as a sort of general pattern that these, these unions are, are kind of, you know, acting almost as roadblocks to, to desired reforms? I think FOP is one of the strongest against reform. Mm -hmm. The National FOP office did not respond to me when I asked them if I could talk to them about how Chicago FOP looks compared to other unions. But there are some cities, like I think San Diego is one where the union president said, we have to cooperate, you know, this, things are changing, we can't keep on going the way we're going. Also, it's important to know that there are other police unions besides FOP. Mm -hmm. And FOP, I think, is one of the most conservative of the police unions. But each city has its, it belongs to a different police union. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you bring up the history of, uh, particularly here, the African American Patrolmen's League, um, as you know, uh, a group of black officers and patrolmen who uh, arose kind of in response to uh, a lot of racial, racially charged violence. Um, coming from the police back in the 60s, but then they kind of fizzle out because of um, because of the power of the, of the FOP and other other you know uh, city administration and everything. Um, well, that's not exactly true. Actually, okay. they fizzled they fizzled out because there was other black unions coming up too, and it kind of divided the black population. So they kind of the whole population just got split. Got it. Okay. Yeah, but even even just just understanding that there are there's the ability for other unions to kind of uh, there has been the ability for other unions to rise in the past and kind of challenge the status quo is I think one of the biggest takeaways that I had from this article, just because when 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 we hear about the the police union, a we don't know that it's you know a particular union. Um, that represents particular people on the police force, but also B, we don't uh, like I don't under I didn't really understand. It makes me think a lot about the argument of the police commissioner and kind of like the city government in in that you know X number per, this, uh, this large percentage of people are sort of uh, more recently hired, more diverse, and that and that change in the police has to come from the, the changing police culture has to come from within, and we just have to kind of give it time because this is kind of the old guard that's there. I mean, based off of what you have understood about the development of FOP and also sort of the political nature of it. Do you find that argument um, believable in any way, or, or are you optimistic or, or not about that? No, I'm really not. <laughs> I mean, people like Cotton Zara, they've been there for 25 years. They're not leaving. Yeah. They've worked hard for their power. They're not going to give it up just because young people are coming in. And then also, and union work is not that exciting. It's a lot of sitting in meetings, and if you're a young person, it's really boring. But it takes up a lot of time when you're just trying to do your job and you're worn out from your job and you think, oh, great, great, I have to go to a union meeting. I was also struck in the article just kind of how... Um how, how, how few resources exist to, uh, for us to understand, maybe police unions in general, or at least FOP Lodge 7. The union itself, it's very closed. 
like I've, I've read that some unions, I think like in Austin, Texas, they're making they, their uh, contract bargaining open to the public. Hmm. So you can, you know, like people like you and me, we can actually go in and see what's going on. And in Chicago, they don't do that. Yeah. So you have no idea what the mayor and Cottons are talking about when they're meeting. Probably a lot of curse words. That's what I'm imagining. <laughs> <laughs> That's mostly, mostly just cursing at each other. <laughs> yeah, they hate each other now. It also it's also just fascinating, you know, being being here in Chicago and talking about uh, the police union as a union. You know, like Chicago is like a union town, and then um, yeah. you know, and especially on maybe the more you know progressive side of things, people sometimes uh, maybe have to have trouble, you know, being like, well, you know, I don't like the police union, but I like unions. You know, and then so trying to wrap your wrap your head around that one uh, in a little bit because it is you know I mean it's it, it, objectively it is amazing uh, the amount of power that they have brought you know in representing their 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 like the people that they represent you know it's just that the, the people they represent uh, sometimes you know there's a lot of uh, issues <laughs> involved in that. Um, well, you know what the thing is like their if you read, their contract is actually also publicly available. But if you read it, you see, like, oh, my God, the things that they get from management. Mm-hmm. Like, when my, my, I mean, admittedly, like, newspaper unions, they are not powerful. <laughs> but, you know, we have to beg for, like, a cost of living raise. And we're getting, like, offered 10% raises, I mean, which is amazing. And, like, retroactively applied, right? <laughs> yes, that's what they were, that's, yeah. I mean, they can be a coercive force as well. So you, you hear oh, about totally. the unions basically threatening to kind of withhold services, um, which of course in this case, th- their services are you know, preserving public safety if like certain conditions aren't met. And I can't really you know, yes. think of many other public sector unions that would, would take that sort of stance, right? The one thing they did get, and the one thing it took, the reason it took them so long to get the union here was because of the strike clause. Mm-hmm. So the Chicago police do not have a strike clause. They have mm-hmm. a no strike clause. So they cannot go on strike. Which is not however, get the yeah. blue flu. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> that's right, exactly. <laughs> Which is interesting because if you look at the, the you know the early history of police unions, um, but also just the, the you know the early history of the, the 20th century, I mean, you know, there were examples of, of police strikes not here in, in Chicago, um, but in other places like Boston. Uh, I know that there were threatened strikes in, in the early 1920s here in Chicago, but you didn't see that happen, as you were kind of preparing this article and kind of doing that deep dive into the, the longer history, was there anything in that sort of pre-FOP era that you came across that surprised you or made you think differently about how these kind of, um, you know, kind of uh, public sector unions took shape? I was surprised at how little pro- uh, protection they had. Mm-hmm. Like the very, very early police unions, like way back in the like, turn of the century, they were mostly just one to like, support each other, you know, give each other moral support, mm-hmm. and also for death benefits for widows and orphans, because the city was not giving them that, mm-hmm. and they were likely to die, I mean, not that they were likely to die, they're more likely than the average person to die in the line of duty. And I can understand why they were angry, like the crossing guards had union protections, and they mm-hmm. did not. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's astounding to me. I mean, wouldn't you be angry if you were, like, going out on the street as a police officer and nobody was going to protect you? Right. I mean, like, you, know, you had no contract. You had to, yeah. you know, just depend on how Mayor Daly was feeling about you at the time. Yeah, I mean, I think about those officers who were involved in, uh, you know, the bombing that, that occurred in the Haymarket area. 
and yes, there was no sort of safety net for, for them. Um, I mean, you know, some private funds are raised and, and, and so forth. Uh, and so yes, I mean, you can kind of see how the union sort of came into being. It's just interesting that it did take as long as it did, uh, particularly when you look at the first half of the 20th century and the relative kind of growth and, and strength of unions at that time. Um, and also that it's like a, you know, a, a solid uh, path to the middle class, right? And, and, and oh, yeah. I'm, so I'm also thinking about, you know, the difference between in the 1880s, the police, the policemen that were, that were killed by the bombing were very similar uh, backgrounds, very, come from very similar communities as the people who were agitating right there. And then now we have, um, you know, you have to, you have to almost usually, I think, always live in the city of Chicago in order to be a policeman. But, you know, they, they, we, we see uh, groupings, right? Mount Greenwood, um, Beverly, other Bob places like that. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Right. Um, and so like there's the part of that, that, that path to the middle class is also maybe in some ways kind of led to uh, a distinguishing between, you know, who's, who's the cop and who's being copped, you know? I think it's interesting, too, to think about the perspective of the black officers. Because some of them, like Julius Gibbons wrote about this a bunch, but he was from a poor black neighborhood in St. Louis, not Chicago. But, mm -hmm. you know, when he's out policing, he's policing people that were like him 10 years ago. How do you do that? I mean, that's, I don't, I don't think the union has any sensitivity to that at all. Because they're all white guys. And do you see any potential for things to change or, or for the union to become more inclusive or for you know younger members to take on greater leadership roles or do you feel like we're kind of just stuck in this pattern for the foreseeable the future the funny thing is that cotton Barrow says that's what he wants he wants to see more diversity he points out that i think a third of the police department has less than five years of service so he's like saying that he wants it he has so many blind spots, it was fascinating to me. He, he actually admitted that he had trouble seeing things in things other than black and white, hmm. which I thought was a strange level of insight from him. But, <laughs> yeah. but if you look at all the officers of the, uh, you know, the FOP going back, and even now, it's a whole bunch of middle-aged white guys. Yep. yep. So I'm, I'm going to put you down more towards the pessimistic side of the spectrum, is what I'm hearing. Well, directing the I question... Have, oh, yeah, sorry. I think, you know, they just have to stick around, and maybe some people just aren't willing to do that. You know, when they see what it is, they're like, well, I'm a young person. I don't want to sit in these meetings with those people. Or I have better things to do, or nothing's going to change. Or even the difficulty of... Know. Yeah, even the difficulty of working at a place where uh, you don't necessarily fully agree with them for, for you know, a decade or more. Yeah. So just redirecting... Just see they are. Mm-hmm. The question is. Oh, no, no. What were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say there was a picture in the Chicago Magazine article of Cotton Zara in his office with his top officers. And there's just like, these six white men sitting around, a, standing around a desk. They're like, they're going like cronies. I mean, it's seriously. Well, is there anything, so I mean, so if kind of change or reform from within the union? Is unlikely. I mean, is there anything that those of us who are residents of, of the city can do to kind of promote reform? I mean, presumably we have to put pressure on elected officials, but what would you say were potential steps that people who are interested in these issues and, and, and want to become involved can can do? I think just to be aware, because I was, I was totally not aware of any of this when I started reporting, 
but you can look at the contracts. You can see them. You can, you know, you can just see what they have, what, what kind of protections they have. And then I think, I don't know. I, I mean, I guess you could write to the police department. You could go to cast meetings. I really don't know. It seems so impenetrable to me. Well, especially the union, you know, like I said, they're yeah. closed off. Yeah. Yeah. But I do take, um, it, I am kind of comforted that the uh, consent decree, it has to go forward. There's no choice. It'll be really interesting to see how it does go forward. We have some, some I think, very challenging years ahead, but let's hope that we end up at a better place when we get through them. Uh, and Amy, thank you so much for talking with us about this. We really enjoyed reading the article in, in Chicago Magazine. Oh, it, was, it was great thank work. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And uh, as I, I agree thank with you, you for having too. me. Oh, thank you. And this is definitely a history that more of us should know um, because it does impact all of our lives uh, for those of us living in the city. So again, Amy, thank you for talking with us. Uh, be well and stay safe. You too. And that's our show. I'd like to thank our guests, Alma Washington, Larry Spivak, and Amy Levitt. As always, my colleague Elliot Heilman, here, here. our producer Annie Klein, and WLPN Radio. And as for you, fine fellow Chicagoans, keep making history. I drove in through that big windy city, kind of hot and dried and bad need of a beer. When I saw a sign that said alcoholic beverage, little thing said come on over here. I was on my way down to Nashville, Tennessee In a hurry, thought it best I move along But I figured what the heck A little friendly conversation Surely couldn't do any harm Here I sit in this Cook County jail Trying to figure out just what I did was wrong Sitting here tonight in this Cook County jail Nashville sure does seem a long ways off. This big man walks in, must have been six foot six. I swear he must have broke my jaw. When I woke up, I had two Chicago policemen, one hanging on to each arm. Said, friend, we don't like none of you hillbilly singers, trying to give our fair town a bad name. So come along with me to the Cook County jail, gonna find out just how good you can sing. And here I sit in this Cook County jail, Trying to figure out just what I did was wrong Sitting here tonight in this Cook County jail Nashville should have seemed a long ways off Now friend, I ain't saying nothing bad about Chicago Without a doubt, there's mighty fine people here But I can't tell too much about the good side of the city Looking at these cold bars of steel and here I sit in this Cook County jail Trying to figure out just what I did was wrong Sitting here tonight in this Cook County jail Nashville should have seemed a long ways off And Nashville should have seemed a long ways off